We turn now to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll read uh, the first nine verses. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he has left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you see at Christmas time? What do you see? It's a question I posed in our bulletin for a title for this morning's message. Now, if we were to answer that question literally, we would probably enumerate a lot of things that we see at this time of year. Uh, we see a lot of different colored lights. We see uh, perhaps presents under a tree, perhaps uh, pictures or, or movies even of a jolly man in a red suit and uh, reindeer. And we see uh, perhaps mentally anyway, we might see imagery of talking lambs and drummer boys. Uh, we see nativity scenes in uh, front lawns, sometimes of churches, sometimes inside churches, uh, decorated trees. And uh, the fact is that most of what we see with our eyes, things that I've described, have little or nothing to do with the actual birth of Christ. So what do we see? What do we see today? Well, our text answers that question in the words, We see Jesus. We see Jesus as he actually came into the world and as he actually is right now, exalted in glory at the right hand of God as the living, glorious Savior and Lord. By faith, by faith, we see the glory of our Savior. It's not something that we see only on this day. It's something that by faith we are enabled by God's grace to look to to fix our minds and hearts on as Christians. But today we consider that particularly in light of our text where we're reminded of his lowly birth. He was made a little while or a little lower than the angels. Various ways in which this language uh, there of verse 7 could be rendered. You have made him a little lower than the angels. And when you look at that verse in its context... Uh, you notice that in uh, your Bibles, I expect it's the case, as it is with mine, that these words are in italics, or it's indicated in one way or another, that there's a quotation from 
uh, scripture. It's actually a reference to Psalm 8, where a number of uh, verses quote um, directly from that psalm. And that's a psalm that, that speaks of, of man. And uh, it's a description here of man at his creation. And in Psalm 8, we're presented with really an astonishing, marvelous contrast, because this is a psalm about the majesty and glory of God, the one who made the the moon and the stars uh, with his fingers. That's the imagery there. The almighty creator of all things. And in view of God's greatness, uh, the question is asked, what is man? What a contrast between the almighty God and man, the creature. But despite that contrast between God and man, God gave man an exalted place in his world. It's described here as a little lower than the angels. And that shows the dignity that God conferred it upon man, made in his own image at the very beginning of creation. Even such a position of dignity as to occupy uh, dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the, the, the animals, every living thing. So that, that's what we, we, we see by faith in terms of the significance of the creation of man, insignificant in himself, in contrast to God, but yet made a little lower than the angels. What a dignified place he occupies. But in our text, that's not what we see. In our text, we see Jesus here. And we see him uh, in a body like Adam, a body that was actually made of the dust of the earth like Adam's, a body made of the flesh and blood of his mother Mary. But here we have a contrast. Well, there's a contrast indeed between uh, what we see as he is described in verse 9 and what uh, we hear of him described in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1. The one who is appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Yes, that's the one also we see by faith in our text as made a little lower than the angels. But he is the creator of angels. In fact, when God brings the firstborn into the world in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And for this one, this creator of angels, to be made lower than the angels, that, that doesn't proclaim his dignity, does it? It proclaims his infinite condescension. The contrast actually is yet deeper than that. Uh, Psalm 8 proclaims the wonder of Almighty God taking thought of man, of caring for him. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? In Jesus, we see Almighty God not simply taking thought of man or caring for man, but becoming man. And we see Jesus then as the miracle of miracles. By his incarnation, God manifested in the flesh. You know that there were uh, many miracles surrounding the birth of Jesus. There was the miraculous appearance of the angels to the shepherds. 
and uh, the message that they that they gave to them. And later on, although it's often confused with the same events surrounding the birth of Jesus, but later on, a star that led wise men to Bethlehem would uh, be over the house uh, to which those wise men came and found Jesus with Mary and Joseph. I say that took place later. Now, we might not gather that from Christmas cards that often present rather kingly-looking individuals in this uh, stable by a manger offering their gifts, but that is a, a distortion and a misconstrual of the facts of the case because the wise men came uh, later, and perhaps perhaps much later, perhaps as much as a year later. And there are a couple of reasons that we, why we know that. Uh, uh, for one thing, after, after 40 days, 40 days after Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary are still in the area, right? And they bring Jesus, uh, uh, to the temple. And, uh, there, an offering is given according to the law for the purification of Mary. And, uh, that would be strange that 40 days after the wise men showed up, they're still hanging around because, uh, they were told, Joseph was told, uh, after the wise men left, that Herod would seek to kill the child, and so they went to Egypt. And so that took place after those those 40 days. And actually, in, in that connection, uh, in addition to the fact that Matthew says that they went to the house where Joseph and Mary and Jesus were, and uh, and it's obvious that that was at least 40 days after um, Jesus was born. Another consideration, and that relates also to this incident that's recorded of of the purification of Mary, and that is that she offered a turtle dove as a sacrifice for her purification. In chapter 2, verse uh, verse 22, it says, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you go back and read the basis for that uh, purifying sacrifice, you'll discover that an offering of two turtle doves was for the poor. It's for those who, who couldn't offer a lamb. And that is a testimony, isn't it, to the poverty of our Lord Jesus Christ. I also think it's additional evidence that they didn't just receive a gift of gold because they could very well have purchased a lamb with that gold and have been offered, been able to offer a lamb. So certainly after 40 days, perhaps as, uh, as long as a year or more passed before the wise men came. And so there was no miraculous star hanging above the cradle as is often depicted. No, that isn't to discount the significance of every miracle that took place surrounding the birth of Jesus. But actually, if you were, if you were an observer to what was going on in uh, that uh, place where Jesus was born, that place in which cattle were housed and fed, you, you wouldn't see anything that was particularly miraculous. Yes, it was by a miracle that the shepherds showed up, but that wasn't observable to Joseph and Mary. In fact, when you consider the circumstances, they may well have liked a miracle because they had just made a very difficult trip to Bethlehem by the authority of the Roman governor and Mary being 
pregnant, that might not have been so easy. It might have been quite of a disappointment to discover that the, the hotel was entirely booked. And so they had to go to this makeshift place where animals were housed. She gave birth there. They might well have liked a chariot to come and pick them up and bring them to Bethlehem. Or an angel to go before him and make sure they had the best suite in the place. But the actual circumstances, rather unmiraculous, were rather difficult providences that tested their their patience and their faith. And the birth itself was an ordinary kind of birth. We shouldn't imagine that Mary was spared the pain and labor of giving birth. And without modern assistance to alleviate pain, an ordinary birth of an ordinary-looking baby. In verse 7 of, uh, of uh, Luke's account here, it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The only unusual thing about that account is not nothing about the birth itself so much as the place where that birth took place and the place where this infant child was laid in a manger. Ordinary. But we might object and say, but that birth was miraculous. It was the miracle of miracles. And uh, there's a sense in which, of course, yes, we must say so. But perhaps not as people might think. Was it actually a miraculous birth? Now, sometimes people say, what a miracle every time a baby is born, because it seems like it. You know there was a little person inside there. But to actually see that person, that little baby, the wonder of it. Yes, it's an amazing thing. But that little person was there all the time, developing in his mother's womb. And that was a natural kind of development. And the birth was a natural thing in which this developing child moved from inside the womb to outside the womb. A very common thing. And that's what happened at the birth of Jesus. A very ordinary kind of birth. But you say, no, it's a miracle because of who he is. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. The miraculous reality of who he is at every step of his life, in the works that he performed, in the words that he spoke. Yes, the reality of the incarnation is a miracle of miracles. But actually, that miracle began not at his birth, but at his miraculous conception, in which the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, so that that one that would be born would be called the Son of God, but who was conceived in her womb, the womb of a virgin, by the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, miracle of miracles, accounting for the God-man. And that miracle appeared at his birth, but it had already taken place. And the birth itself, in terms of the circumstances, It's a natural, normal kind of birth. There was no halo around Jesus' head. There was no halo around around Joseph's or Mary's head. You know, you've seen that perhaps in Christmas cards, a kind of glow around their head. There was no miracle like that. And when those shepherds came in to see Jesus, those very men who had fallen uh, to the ground in fear at the appearance of an angel, it doesn't appear that they were greatly afraid at the maker of angels, when they saw him. In fact, the wonder of Jesus' birth is the lowliness of the Son of God in the way he entered this world. The utter lowliness of the incarnation of God 
veiled in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels at his birth. Secondly, we see Jesus in his glorious exaltation. Actually, our text highlights this as the main point of this verse, it appears, where it says that uh, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That's like the prevailing thought here, the main, the main perspective of this text. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The one who was made a little lower than the angels, but look at him now. We see Jesus alone above all others. And here again, we need to, we need to note the contrast that is involved in our text. Our verse begins with the word but that indicates a, 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 a contrast. And that contrast is given to us in the previous verse where it says, now we do not yet see all things put under him. Man was created in the image of God and given a place of dominion over all creation, but we just do not see that. We do not see man with all things put under him. Because after Genesis 1 comes Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, the man, in effect, bows to the serpent. And he succumbs to his lies. And it's as though the crown falls from his head. And he's expelled from the garden. And this creation begins to groan under the effects of sin. And we do not see man in a kind of exalted glory exercising dominion in God's name because of the entrance of sin. The image and the dignity of God is defaced. And that means that this psalm, Psalm 8, is ultimately about the Son of Man, Jesus' most characteristic way of referring to himself, the Son of Man. In our text, we turn from the shame of fallen man and we see the one God-man who is now higher than the heavens. That's how he's described in chapter 7, verse 28. Exalted in glory. Jesus holds the place of absolute dominion. He is crowned as king of kings. He is over all the works of God's hand to rule as had over all, and he will subjugate all resistance under his feet. It's interesting that uh, the book of Revelation in the 12th chapter gives kind of a survey of the, of the history of redemption, including the birth of Jesus that's described as uh, being, who's described as being given birth by this woman who cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And we read in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's a description of the Christ born in Bethlehem. One who was born to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's with reference to the subjugation of his enemies. Unlike the first man who fell under the power of evil, Jesus prevails despite the presence and power of evil and rebellion that's still at work in this world. Yes, as verse 8 says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. 1 Corinthians enlarges on that where it says in 
chapter 15, verse uh, 25 and following. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. Another quotation from Psalm, Psalm 8, making clear that that Psalm is about Christ. And it speaks of his exalted glory, which we by faith can see today. This is the Jesus the world doesn't know. It doesn't see him. And this is the difference between sentimental feelings about a story of a baby, even a miracle baby, and the worship of God, the worship of our King, our Lord. This is the difference between seeing Jesus in our memory or imagination as a historical person and seeing him by faith as the one who came into the world to save his people from their sins. And that's how we look at this one who was born in Bethlehem. And our text teaches us how. It gives us a wonder, wondrous explanation for, for this birth. It says he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. For the suffering of death. Why the story? What's it all about? That's the answer to these questions. For the suffering of death. Why was Jesus born? In order to die. Why did the eternal son take on our nature? In order to die in it. Right? Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He shared in our nature so that through death he might destroy the devil. One of the most tragic forms of grief that parents can suffer is the death of a son or daughter in their young adulthood. Because for 20, 25 or so years, they've watched this beloved child grow up. They've watched him gain uh, knowledge and understanding and strength and a growing maturity. And then suddenly, as they reach what seems to be the goal of their life in terms of entering into adulthood, so that they might live a fruitful and productive life, they're cut down. And the great temptation of parents is to say, why? What a waste. What a waste of attention and love and care and concern and prayer and everything that went into bringing this child to adulthood, only to see them die. Now, that would be a mistake. That would be a temptation, but it would be a mistake for Christians. Because God has his wise and gracious purposes in such things. But then think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was the tender infant body of Jesus brought to safe birth? Why was he rescued from Herod's sword? Unlike other babies and children in Bethlehem. Why was he fed? Why was he strengthened with exercise and work until his manhood? Well, the answer of our text, above all, is that he might be a spotless sacrifice, that he might experience it, that he might taste it. That's what the that word taste refers to. It doesn't mean just a little slight taste. No, it means that he would experience death. That's why he was made a little lower than the angels, so that he could die in that human nature that he assumed on our behalf. And he would die in the agonizing form of being made a curse for us by suffering the accursed death of the cross. 
for a substitutionary death, that he might taste death for everyone, it says. He was born of Jewish blood. He was the son of David, the son of Abraham. But his blood was not shed for Jews or for any one ethnicity or class or type. Listen to our Savior's words in John chapter 6. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He would give that flesh and blood in his death as a substitutionary sacrifice for the life of the world. Verse 40 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone who sees the Son. Well, that's not limited to those who saw him with their eyes on earth. But that refers to everyone who perceives the reality of who he is as the Son of God. God's provision for sinners and believes in him, whoever they may be, eternal life. This wondrous explanation is of a birth for the suffering of death, for a substitutionary death, and for a grace-proclaiming death, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for everyone. And to put that very simply, it means that there is no human goodness that deserves or that achieves this salvation through his death. There's no badness, on the other hand, that disqualifies sinners from it or defeats its power to save. Galatians chapter 4, we read, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem them by taking their place under the curse of God's broken law, being made a curse for us so that we might receive the adoption as children. The scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We see Jesus. We see Jesus in the marvel of his incarnation, in the wonder of his person, the supreme manifest of God's love and grace to us. We see him as entering in this world for the purpose of dying for us. And we see him exalted. We see him as one who has risen from the dead and who is now exalted as a savior who always lives for us. And who ensures also that we will be eventually with him where he is. If we are to be built up spiritually by observing Christmas, by observing Christmas, what we need to observe is not simply a holiday or observe what is visible to the eye, but we need to observe by faith uh, what it's really all about in terms of a commemoration of the birth of our Savior and uh, make the effort to uh, see through so many of the distractions and uh, to recognize that there's always this danger that our, that our perspective, uh, our vision might be dimmed, not only at this time of the year, but dimmed by the cares of this world and obstructed, and keep looking to Jesus. Your eyes shall see the King in his glory, says in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 17. And I believe that refers to the ultimate consummation when Christ will appear to our very eyes, and we will see him 
But in the meantime, we look to Jesus. And by looking to him, by beholding him as is revealed in the word of God, we are, we are transformed into his image, his likeness from glory to glory by the work of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ will be fulfilled when he prayed in John 17, Father, I desire also that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory that we might see Jesus as he is, and seeing him be like him. Amen.